Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is a black feminist historian and associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University. She is the recipient of several prestigious fellowships, including the ACLS Mellon Scholars and Society Fellowship, the Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellowship at Harvard University, and the Woodrow Wilson Career Enhancement Fellowship. Lindsay is the founder of the Transformative Black Feminisms Initiative at Ohio State and the co-founder of Black Feminist Night School at Zora's House in Columbus, Ohio. Her latest book entitled America Goddamn, Violence, Black Women and the Struggle for Justice explores contemporary violence against black women and girls and how they mobilize to halt violence against them. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So glad to be here. Well, thank you. It's our pleasure. So you're just coming out now with a book, America Goddamn, uh, Violence, Black Women and the Struggle for Justice. Really, in many ways, this has been your life's work that you've been dedicated as a Black feminist historian. I think you've selected a passage uh, to read to us. Yes, yes, I have. Um, And this comes from the introduction to the book, which really sets both the tone and investment uh, from a personal standpoint, but also as a Black feminist historian, since the book is a blend of history, memoir, and theory to bring home this kind of story of what it looks like in the United States as it pertains to violence against Black women and girls. Goddamn, goddamn, goddamn. As I finished this book, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd, a 45-year-old Black man on May 25th, 2020, by pressing his knee into Floyd's neck for almost 10 minutes had just begun. On the second day of the trial in March, 2021, the prosecution called 18-year-old Darnella Frazier and her nine-year-old cousin, also a Black girl, to testify about what they witnessed on that fateful day. My heart broke as I listened to Darnella, who was 17 at the time she filmed Chauvin killing George. Her video went viral and sparked protests worldwide. This teenage black girl cried as she testified and stated that she stayed up nights apologizing to George for not doing more. I couldn't stomach the trauma and guilt she felt, nor could I make it through the five minute questioning of the nine-year-old black girl who saw George's last moments as well. What she saw made her sad and kind of mad. Although both black girls survived this horrific incident, what they endured as they bore witness is unbearable. They must live with the sounds and sights of a man's life being taken by a peace officer without an ounce of visible remorse. You don't shake off witnessing something like that. None of us do. The violence we endure as well as what we witness stays with us and it shapes us. All I could say as I witnessed their witnessing was goddamn. Exactly. I I can't imagine. And all too sadly, these are the cases that we know about, but all too sadly, that act of witnessing is one. It just becomes like a almost a commonplace in different degrees, right? Um, so I think it's really a timely book. And also I would have to say, and you also identify it, that we don't often think enough about the experiences of black women. Absolutely. It is something that I'm hoping this book, alongside other folks like Andrea Ritchie and Kimberly Crenshaw, who helped found the Say Her Name campaign, to bring to the forefront what Black women endure and Black girls endure at the intersection of racism and sexism and poverty and many other forms of oppression. And 
oftentimes black women and girls are caught in this web of multiple jeopardy as coined by black feminist scholar Deborah King, who talks about the multiple sites at which Black women are experiencing oppression and marginalization and dispossession. And so this book is attempting to enter into that conversation to offer us a very detailed look at these different forms of violence and harm and unlivable living and the struggles that Black women and girls have mounted in response to this seemingly, as you mentioned, kind of ubiquitous climate of violence against us. Right. And take us back to your childhood and some of those teachers or inspiring role models that you had that really set, might have set you on your path to becoming the historian you are today. Yes. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. So I grew up in the nation's capital in the 80s, uh, then what we've been called Chocolate City. So a predominantly Black city growing up in a poor and working class Black neighborhood in, in Washington. So in the shadows of the capital, but a very different world from Capitol Hill, but deeply impacted by what was happening on Capitol Hill. So it's the Reagan era, it's the Bush era, it's the war on drugs, it is tough on crime. And all of this is assailing my communities in various ways that we're treating our communities as enemy combatants. So I saw how hard and how vile the treatment of black people in my neighborhood was. I saw that from a very young age. I saw our schools comparatively being underfunded. You could feel it when you would travel to other parts of the city and just see different institutions, you'd see a different level of attention that's being paid and far less surveillance and criminalization um, that's happening. And so even though I was living in this poor working class neighborhood and eventually a more working class neighborhood, as I grew older, I went to school at one of these very elite private schools in Washington, DC. I went to Sidwell Friends. Some people will know that now is where the Obama girls went, where Chelsea Clinton went. So a lot of very, very well-known people, very wealthy people. And to see how different I was experiencing the world being at Sidwell and then being in my respective neighborhoods brought to the fore just how disparate the treatment of largely poor black people were and most white people irrespective of class status. So that really connected me with teachers who were helping me to understand and process that. Both of my parents are educators, so they had a lot of insight. My father was formerly in law enforcement when I was younger, so he had very pointed critiques of law enforcement that he shared with me even as a child. I got the talk of how you handle yourself if you're engaged by a police officer from my parents because they knew that my encounter would not be the same as some of my white classmates or some of my wealthier classmates and so that I had to know how to navigate that. So from a very young age my dad used to call me his little Angela Davis. I always had this sense of fairness and wanting everybody to feel included and always wanting to befriend the person who wasn't necessarily being seen as the cool person or the it person whatever that may look like, right? Someone who didn't speak English in the context of the US or someone who had a visible disability or someone, I always saw people on the margins of the margins as, as my people, the people I felt the closest to. And I felt like I, I needed to be in the struggle with them alongside them in addition to my own experiences as a young black girl and young black woman. So I was watching people call out things and that could be anyone from 
politicians, local politicians that I knew, my parents, or I was inspired by Janet Jackson when I was little. I was a dancer and I love performing. I'm a stage nut. <laughs> so I love to perform, but that she used her platform, if we think about something like a Rhythm Nation when I was younger, which was my very first concert. And she's talking about knowledge and racism and confronting injustice and oppression. And that has followed through. So how do you use the skills that you have to do the work that matters most? And for me, that ultimately became as a teacher and as a writer to teach and write about these issues. So I've been so fortunate to have so many teachers and so many writers be of influence to me. Everyone from Toni Morrison to June Jordan to Tony K. Bambara, to Kimberly Crenshaw, to my mother, to my grandmothers. Those are some of the individuals who really shaped how I saw myself in the world and what my purpose was in the world. You know, inspiring role models is so important. And as you say, to use the skills that you have to make the world a better place. Just going back to that, as you said that your dad gave you the talk, and I think this is a talk that must most often take place in Black communities where it seems like it's normalized, you've just got to be prepared. I don't think mm -hmm. that's a talk that's given, like if you ask the average white person growing up, if they had the talk, they don't know what you're right. talking about. And so, I mean, that in, in effect, shows some of the divide, right? That there's more than one America. And some people say two. And I think depending on your position of race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, there are different various talks that are happening. But as a Black girl, it was, look, you will be seen as a threat if you make this kind of movement. If a cop stops you, hands on the wheel, make sure all your hands are visible. Yes, sir. No, sir. Very polite. Try not to at any point get irritated or angry because it will be read as antagonistic and possibly lead to a further escalation. So, so much of this was about how do you comport yourself to not be violated and to not be killed? And so I never had offers so friendly in the way that my friends did. That's never how I saw policing. I saw police as like people who harmed people in my community, people who took away people from my community when we see the rise of the prison industrial complex and mass and targeted mass incarceration in the United States. I was in those neighborhoods that just saw generations of people disappeared into these systems for a range of prescribed offenses. And so when you grow up seeing the police, not as people who protect and serve, but people who police, criminalize and take away, that gives you a very different engagement with how we think about safety and vulnerability. So you might experience harm within your community, but the police don't make you feel safer because that could compound the harm that you're already experiencing. So it really demands that we ask the question, how do we actually address safety in robust and real ways that centers the disparate experiences of marginalized people? Exactly. No, we do need some kind of law enforcement. We don't live in a utopia, so we do need some kind of, but it's something that engages with the community that respects the different communities it's policing so that it protects the people it's supposed to protect and doesn't harm those who they are meant to protect. Speaking of another uh, native DC uh, person, <laughs> I interviewed George Pelicanos and he had a wild childhood. You may know him from working with David Simon on The Wire and other TV shows. And, you know, he, as a young wild kid, he, sh he shot a a boy <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't a fatal outcome. He was just given a kind of ticking off. So that would not be the experience that, say, a person of color would, would have at all. Um, no. 
whether it's a boy, definitely not. If it was a girl, you know, so that's something else you examine that typically, you know, women are seen or posed as, you know, unthreatening or more vulnerable, whatever. And you really describe the experiences of very young Black girls who would be already seen, had all this baggage put on you before you even had a chance to mature. Absolutely. And we talk about this as the adultification of Black girls. And we see this across the board with the adultification of Black children. But with Black girls, what we see is that young girls are seen as angry, loud. All of the stereotypes that we have about adult Black women get mapped on to Black children. And in this case, Black girls as loud, as aggressive, as confrontational, as violent. And so this results in six-year-old girls being put in handcuffs and being put in the back of police cars for what essentially can amount in many ways to a tantrum at school, right? And so we see a criminalizing appetite for Black girls in the classroom. So Black girls are suspended higher than any other group across gender except for Black boys. That's it. Right, they're suspended more than white boys, and we tend to see more disciplinary action towards boys, right? Because there are ways that we talk about behavior and everything that is definitely gendered and rooted in that. But black girls exceed all groups of boys except for black boys in terms of being suspended and punished and expelled and facing harsh disciplinary actions, including police intervention in schools. So you'll see physical altercations between what are called school resource officers and young children, young black children. And this happens far more often than we even have a key kind of documented record for. And so part of doing this project and working on this book and doing this work for the last several years is really investigating those stories, finding out what happened to these young girls after that moment? How are they moving through the world knowing that they could be harmed so easily and people feel justified and, and feel like what they did was reasonable to these young girls. Yeah, I mean, you certainly can't get your childhood back. And that's, it's so tragic. And you speak about the prison industrial complex, which is just, sometimes it seems incentivized to, you know, keep the populations going. And, uh, and so it's unfair, the, the disproportionate amount of time or penalization that's given. And another question that I think about, like we've been doing some interviews with neuroscientists and, you know, the, the young brain is still hmm. forming. We all, we've all done some things we regret. We've done some, maybe sometimes wild <laughs> things, hormones, all this stuff. We don't even know who we are. It's not, it doesn't even settle down until you're in, the, you're sometime in your early 20s. So the kind of penalization that takes place, and as you say, the criminalization of things that might be just acting out, just teenage, whatever, it, or even younger, as you say, it's just unfair. And it doesn't come with that understanding that these are people who are still forming, still finding themselves and not always knowing boundaries too. And that's to speak of those who might behave, have done things that are misinterpreted or whatever, uh, not to say those who are entirely innocent being judged before they've done anything. Right. You have to hold many truths in that, right? How we ingrate that. So in the earlier part of what you were saying, this incentivizes, and we literally have towns where people are, you know, working to close prisons and jails in towns and towns are like, you can't do that because we won't have any um, employment opportunities here. The prison or the jail is the main source of employment. Now we've tied having people incarcerated to the literal financial health of a city or town. That's a problem, 
right? That's a serious problem. That prompts people to criminalize. It prompts people to criminalize younger and younger. It prompts people to criminalize criminalized disability, hence why you see anywhere from a third to half of fatal police encounters are with people with disabilities. In addition to that, so if you're Black and with disabilities, that intersection makes you far more vulnerable to fatal police violence. And with children, we think about this, even if they are doing something that is harmful, how do we rein that in? How do we find what's the root of this? How do we approach that with care? How do we approach it from a health perspective, and I'm thinking about healthier in terms of mental, physical well-being of these kids. And if we're suspending or expelling or disciplining or arresting or physically engaging them, what is that teaching them about how we respond when someone is transgressed? We're already building in a discreetly punitive framework for grappling with things as opposed to a restorative or reparative or transformative framework for, for doing that. And that's a really hard place to move from when we're thinking about what children in particular too, as you notice, children and teenagers, and even really we're seeing this through young adulthood, right? Where we're still developing certain kinds of skills. And if we criminalize so young, we're not offering these kids second chances. One of my favorite authors, K.S.A. Lehman says, we all deserve healthy love and second chances. And that includes adults and children. And children need more than second chances because they're figuring things out. <laughs> and they're trying to understand the world and where they fit into the world and the order of the world. And they're also, especially children who are marginalized from marginalized communities are figuring out what marginalization feels like and then how they respond to that. So their behavior, even if they're doing the same behavior as a, a white counterpart, Theirs might be read differently because it's being read through the lens of preconceived notions and biases and racism and sexism and language bias if it's a student whose English is not their first language, right? Those are really important things to understand or teachers or administrators who aren't familiar with working with neurodivergent children or children who are autistic or children who have other kind of invisible disabilities that matters and we have to have a more caring and robust approach to what we see as transgression and reframe that through how do we understand and make this a healthy and whole space for all students who are here. You know the statistics on this, I, I don't really know. I would love to see that a greater part of the money that's set aside for infrastructures around incarceration was funneled towards community centers or after school care, all these kind of things that are important, kind of social work. It's just not, as you say, that it's it's meant towards healing, it's directed towards teaching, it's directed towards understanding that these are children. And then you can actually avoid if a lot of people just think about the economics of it, you can avoid the expenses of, of the other, which is a tragedy to make that the first option. How does that break down uh, these Ooh. statistics public? <laughs> I don't know. You know, what we know nationally, I mean, our huge budget is policing, right? I mean, policing is, depending on what city, is hundreds of millions of dollars in most metropolitan areas. And Columbus, New York, New York's policing budget is larger than many countries' military <laughs> budget. And in some places, exceeds even the GDP of some smaller nations. What does that mean when we can think of public schooling getting such a small percentage, single percentage of the hundreds of millions of dollars that go into policing? 
And often we're talking about policing, even when we're adding resources or saying we're getting more resources to improve policing, the harm has already happened once police are there, right? It's not anything that's preemptive to prevent a shooting or a sexual assault or a robbery or any of the other kind of criminalized acts. We want to stop that. So what does that mean? That means a living wage, that means housing, that means healthcare, that means education, that means community centers, after school programs, family assistance, all of these things that we know work, that we have proven that when we divest from these more criminalizing parts of our budget and invest in community-centered initiatives for communities, we see less harm in those communities. If people have jobs and have a living wage, you're far less likely to see robberies, larceny, these kinds of petty survival crimes. You're also far less likely to see high levels of violence right, in these spaces. It doesn't eradicate all of it, but it does do a significant amount versus saying crime has happened, let's have more police there and present there. Not to mention the hundreds of millions of dollars that if we combine all across the country, uh, over a billion dollars that has gone just towards settlements for police misconduct over the last few years, how much of that money could have gone to, towards some of these community-centered initiatives if we aren't dealing with misconduct, but dealing with who should be a first responder in this incident? So if we're having someone who's having, let's say, some kind of challenge with mental health, why is a police officer the first person we think of to grapple with that as opposed to a mental health expert who will be arriving and able to de-escalate? Because we've seen in a lot of instances when that's happened, police actually escalate the situation and it becomes more. So the person who is not being violent, it just seems like they're erratic or right, not in a good health space are then criminalized and the situation becomes something else when having a mental health expert, having a caseworker who's there, having someone who's a loved one in that situation can also be more helpful and keep and preserve life or prevent injury from occurring in that instance. And we have to be thinking about new ways because we're so used to thinking about police as who we call for X, Y, or Z. And some of this is imagining other ways of thinking about safety. I'm sure those who are police officers, many would not want to be responding to all of these things, but we have to retrain ourselves to think about how we respond when there's a transgression or something that is wrong or something that could be harmful. How do we actually stop that thing from happening in the immediate and then in the long term? How do we stop that thing from happening? And so America, goddamn, that's more recent. You're also a historian and you've taken the long view back. You've been able to compare. Some people have said to me in the past that they felt like, well, of course, America has this huge, long history of being racist and all that, but that there was a kind of closer uh, relationship between police and the communities they policed in the past. I mean, I don't know if this is kind of wishful thinking or underreporting, or maybe it's true. There's a truth in that. And that made it. You know, when you have a relationship, then you will call the police because you feel you can trust them. So how do you feel that's evolved, evolved, changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that you have police brutality protest in Black communities for over 100 years. Um, and it's pretty consistent that this is an issue in terms of how engagement is happening. Now, there are 
these historical moments where we see folks who are from, and this is much like teachers. This is not all that different. When your teachers come from the community that you're teaching in, the relationships that you have, my teachers, when I was growing up, my first elementary school in DC, they knew my parents. <laughs> we also went to church together. We'd see them at the store. And so there was a way like, Treva was acting up in class today. You know, there was this informality, but there was a care and investment when you have people who are connected in that way. And there are a lot of folks who argue for th that kind of model of policing, right? Community policing is often what people are arguing for in that instance. Part of reframing even that, right, as a possible solution is saying, but policing at its core is founded in the kind of regulation of Black people and the criminalizing of Black people primarily via slave patrols. And then after that, in protecting white businesses, both from Black people and from immigrants arriving to the US. So that's in the core, that's in the DNA of policing in the United States. So to rest that out means we actually have to reimagine what it means to think about safety in a community so that you do want to call someone who makes you feel safe when you feel threatened. That, that's a natural reaction to feeling unsafe, seeking someone who can help you feel safer. And so I want structures where people have that and have access to that, but aren't picking up and wondering, should I call, should I not call? Because if I do this, I might actually be less safe after this phone call and still be not dealing with the lack of safety I'm feeling right at this moment. And I feel like far too many of uh, people in marginalized communities are struggling with that conundrum. Who do we call? Who actually has our best interest at heart? Who is going to care about what is happening to me and see me fully as someone who is being harmed and treat me as such as opposed to a potential perpetrator or someone who is going to be criminalized for being vulnerable. Dr. Lindsay described having to talk with her parents about how to handle herself with law enforcement. As a child of African immigrants, I too can relate to this. Or rather than a talk, they would paint a possible scenario that did not end well. So for instance, if we wanted to return a book to the library at say 7 p.m., the response might be, what if a policeman stops you and thinks you're reaching for a gun when you're reaching for a book? They can just shoot you right there. Although we didn't really believe it could happen, we wouldn't go, not at night anyway. And they kept us safe. That fear kept us safe. But scenarios like these really colored my view of the police. It's something everyone who identifies as Black in America realizes very quickly. Being Black comes with a significant overhead to our lives. The expression paying the Black tax is real. I appreciate Dr. Lindsay's insights about the cost of over-policing in Black America because up until now, I hadn't realized that in being so fearful, so overcautious, I've spent most of my life living at the edge of public spaces in our society never wanting to attract too much attention or to make people upset because what if there was an incident and the police were cold? I would never be a winner in that scenario. I have extended this idea not just to police situations but even to job situations or social situations where there is a dispute. I don't expect to win and sadly only rarely have I been proven wrong. However, after this interview I feel more hopeful that with teachers, historians, and activists like Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay sharing and retelling these stories, 
the general public might get a bit more insight into the challenges facing our communities of color, particularly within the Black community. Now back to the interview. You mentioned the church, which you know historically has been great for holding communities together. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering how is that evolving, or is that is there a diminishing of the role of the because I hear there's <laughs> rise in atheism and all these things, right. but it's always seemed like a great backbone, both creatively. I think of all the great writers who've come through the church, great public yes. speakers, as great singers. You know, just it goes Ooh. on and on. It's been right. a great teacher for yes. You know, it has been a, an amazing space. In the introductory chapter, I talk about the catalyst, one of the catalysts for Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn is the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963 that killed four Black girls. And that, that's why it's such a central part of how I'm thinking about um, my work um, and her song is that bombing and what it does to the Birmingham community. It is singularly important, of course, for the loved ones of the four girls who were killed and the fifth girl who was seriously injured, but it rocks Birmingham. And it really shows just how virently and violently racist many people were and uh, the city still had embedded within it. And so in thinking about that, bombing a church had that kind of significance. And in 2015, when we see the mass healing at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina by Dylan Roof, you know, again, it's the church that he had prayed with them before this vicious act happened. And so I think the church, I think, has an in religious institution still plays a part in developing those skills, that oratory skills, those connecting and organizing and community building that is still there. But there are people who are very critical of our religious institutions and critical of what some would say are kind of more regressive politics. If you're someone who's like, look, we can't have be fighting for black life and black liberation and you're homophobic or transphobic or don't want women in leadership or turning a blind eye to certain kinds of harms that are happening, right? We want religious institutions that feed into a, a, a liberatory and progressive and radical tradition. And that does exist. There is a through line. There are more conservative religious traditions and there absolutely is a liberatory theological tradition that can undergird that. And so I still think that religious institutions in a particular instance is the black church can have a role to play. And I think there are a number of religious leaders who would like to continue to be part of, of the community of folks pushing to move us forward in this struggle for justice. And there are more and more robust critiques about um, the church, about religiosity, and what feels for some people stagnant. So you do see far less numbers. I think I see it most visibly in singing personally, because I'm like, oh, y'all didn't, y'all weren't raised in the church because you would know you got to try this with a voice, you know how to work an audience, right? It's a training ground. And when I say as an organizer, you get people on board with things, you, you practice that, or someone who's a compelling speaker that the church, whether you're a kid doing little presentations at Sunday school, or you're someone who is, listening to a kind of pastoral cadence, a pastoral cadence um, of someone preaching, that matters. And I think that those aesthetics of movement uh, have definitely shifted in the last 20 or yeah. so years. Something I think, if I try to imagine, because that's a question that so some people are like, oh, the world would be a better place without religion because of, you know, 
the bad choice, but when I think, try to imagine what that world would be, I don't think it would be possible because I think we are always, there is something transformative, whether it's the arts, which is not, you know, religious, but it's a transformative. And some people find that transformation through the church. So I think that if I had to come down at history, if I think about the great works of art, if it was just to take God out of mm-hmm. the equation, would I be willing to give that up? I, I don't think so. Or the people who are also works of art themselves. Right. Um, it's hard, right? It's, you know, do you want to throw it all away? And I understand, right? Religion and particularly people's interpretations of religion have led to some truly horrible things in the history of the world, right? There's no doubt about that. There's so many global conflicts and wars and genocides and extermination that are that have religious rooting and and I don't want to deny that I also don't know deny people the ways that religiosity and spirituality also fuel some really dynamic and amazing things whether that be music whether that be visual art whether that be connection and community and feeling like a safe haven away from some of the other awful things that are happening in the world or some explanation, some space to think through the questions of how did we get here? What is our responsibility to one another? How do we interact with one another? How do we interact with the planet? Those kinds of things matter. And I think for a lot of people, religion still holds a certain weight in being able to do that. And I think for those who it does, who are also very politically engaged and very progressive in their views are challenging religious institutions to really look at themselves and tap into more dynamic traditions, more open, inclusive, and social justice-centered spaces. So I think that matters too, that there are people who are like, look, I'm not giving religion up. I'm not giving my faith up, but I also am not going to have this faith space be one that is denying the humanity of my siblings across gender, across sexualities, across race. That's not gonna happen. This is not what this faith tradition should be doing. And so I'm appreciative of those who are deep in the trenches on that work, who are like, I'm not letting this go, but I need us to be better. And I need us to be more attentive and more compassionate. Right, the institutions that serve us, I think they all need to evolve, the church included. And I mean, we have some very progressive, we have a Pope at the moment. I mean, these things are not like set in stone. So that's why I want to ask you, because it can be a source of joy and love. And so you, as one who is documenting violence and death and these things that could get you down you know of course where do you find joy you know have a space for celebrating black excellence have a space for just you know we are not just the sum of our miseries absolutely that was so important to me in this book and thank you for that that question that even in this book writing about people who are harmed or killed I, I use their first names in the book I try to find out something about their life before this encounter when they become this spectacular example of a systemic problem. It's like, did they like to sing? Did they like to dance? Did they have a nickname? Did they make TikTok videos or whatever it may be because we're finding joy in that was hell bent on wearing them down. And that predisposes black people towards premature death. And so how do you create joy in a world where that is a reality? And so for me, it is a commitment to to joy. I didn't get up writing this book. I didn't go to sleep writing this book. I made sure that there was a fun show. I'm a Golden Girls fanatic. I watched a lot of Golden Girls during 
this process. I danced because that's my that's my first love. That's my first. Yes, I, I danced all the time throughout this. I made sure I was connecting with friends, which of course was very challenging in the last couple of years, being that, you know, we've been in the middle of and still are in a pandemic that was disparately affecting people in, in, in our communities. At one point, I was writing the book, it was like one in every 700 Black people had died from COVID. And now it's one in, I think, almost 300, every 300, uh, maybe less than that has died from COVID. And so the feeling of death all around, you have to choose. For me, I had to choose joy. I had to choose connection. Because what world am I fighting for if not one that's filled with joy? Right. So if I get rid of all of the terrible things and then we're just like, all right, here's a world. <laughs> it's like, no, I want a world that's filled with laughter and love and ecstasy and dynamism. And I wanted that energy. And so that meant I had to practice it. So thinking about practicing freedom, what does that look like? That means in spite of the conditions of unfreedom in which many of us find ourselves, that we can practice actively freedom. And so that for me meant good meals, good shows, good times, and not wavering in my commitment to that as much as I was committed to finishing this book or doing any other kind of projects that I was working on at this time, that fun was part of this, that it had to be, because that's the world I want, right? That's the world I want to see, that it's free from violence and filled with opportunities for joy and connection. I think that you know, I, I'm glad that you can embrace the the with a sense of joy or gratitude for the the wonderful aspects of life, even as we've all gone through this pandemic. And those statistics are really, I don't like to say they're statistics. Those facts are terrible. The disproportionate, you know, numbers of deaths that have uh, struck people of color. That's just so unfair. But that you find joy in the face of all that. And as a historian, looking back, I mean, despite sometimes it feels like we're going forward and then we're going back. So it's not it's not a progression. It's just sort of it's like a I don't know it's like a EKG. Yes. Um, but as you look back, because of, as you wrote about in Colored No More, reinventing Black womanhood in Washington D.C. There's incredible, brave women, you know, wonderful voices across different sectors. But looking back, there has been a, a lot of advances despite the continuing violence mm-hmm. that does take place. Yes, absolutely. I look, I'm one of those, I'm with you. It's not quite a linear movement. We talk about like ebbs and flows, or I like that EKG. I'm going to have to borrow that from you with credit, of course. I went to the college, I went to Oberlin College, and which was the first college in the United States that Black women were graduating from because they had an open admissions policy. So in the 19th century, a Black woman went to college, chances are you went to Oberlin until the founding of a lot more historically Black colleges and universities in the latter part of the 19th century. And so stepping into that legacy, I'm, I, you know, my life at Oberlin looked very different. <laughs> From my foremothers. And I want to acknowledge that. That's an incredible work because to dismiss it is, is to dismiss all of the work they did. To say that nothing changes dismisses the boots to the ground that so many Black people, allies, folks of color put in to make this look different. And just because it doesn't look like what it should does not mean that 
hasn't been incredible strides and incredible activism that is pushing us. And to use my kind of Star Wars reference, the empire strikes back often, right? So you make this progress and then there's a retrenchment. You make this progress. We're in that constant thing. So we have to be unwavering in our commitment to principles of justice and freedom and be harbingers of hope. It's what can feel like regression that's happening. It's like, okay, there is, right? I'm thinking about in the country right now, we've had these incredible moments of seeing a show like Pose on television with so many trans black and brown actors that you had Laverne Cox on the cover of Time. You had a really wonderful documentary um, disclosure about trans representation and some really positive steps made forward with regards to trans healthcare. And right now we're seeing all of these bills pop up across states criminalizing trans youth. And it is important for us to recognize in that moment, part of that backlash is because certain progress was being made, because we were starting to question gender and its fixity and the ways that transphobia operates, because people were becoming aware of how vulnerable trans people are in our world to violence. And so, of course, we see a response to that, which means we have to retool and keep fighting. That's, that's the charge, right? The struggle is, at this point, still an unending one, but it doesn't mean that along the way, there's certain victories haven't amassed that give us hope to propel us forward and be ready when the next attack on freedoms, on rights, on justice emerges, because it will, um, right? We're, we're pushing in ways that are uncomfortable because we're disrupting the center, we're disrupting the default, we're disrupting power. And power is not just gonna concede because we're demanding it, so it is, for me, this is a lifelong thing. And I think of it as ancestor work that I one day will be someone's ancestor. And I want them to be proud of the work that we did to, to give them a world that's a little better of an inheritance than the world that I was born into. And I think that is how we mark progress in, in more nuanced ways, right? In more honest ways that doesn't need it to be a straight line towards freedom, but more of a journey where there are wins and losses, setbacks, and victories. One of our missions here is one generation inspiring another. And I definitely feel that. And it goes both ways, you know? So, mm -hmm. it's not, so I, and you know that as a teacher, the joys of teaching is you start the teaching process and then you get to a point where they're teaching you and there's a great oh. feedback. You know, we were doing an interview the other day with the, someone who's a specialist in ancient Japan. And then the student did her interpretation and she says, oh, well, that reminds me of this song by Childish Gambino. And it was just, you would not even think that they belong mm. to the same conversation. But it's those <laughs> moments, right? It's like, oh, yes. Like what is pulling in? I mean, I'm always learning from my students and I say I'm facilitating at best and then we're really learning together and I can teach the same material their classes that I've taught for like over a decade at this point and each time is different because it's a different set of students and so it's different knowledges all around that are bringing their experiences and their interpretations and their reading of a text or of looking at a piece of art or listening to a song and bringing that to the fore and I know I'm grow because I am a teacher and I'm not in any way ashamed of the fact that I feel like sometimes I'm getting more from my students than they're getting from me because they're they're just there's 
30 plus of them usually in a class and they have so many ideas and they're so thoughtful, but they're also really to hear what I'm presenting to them. And so, as you said, it's, it is generation to generation, it's intergenerational that we make the kind of substantive changes and impact that we want in the world that you know, I hate when we get into these generational clashes. I mean, they're fun on Twitter for little moments or you weren't there when from an older generation or, you know, the younger generation telling us about some old technology or something. But at the end of the day, when we realize that we have so much that we can learn from one another and that it only makes our basket of tools bigger when we work with each other and think about this as an ongoing learning space, both in the classroom or in organizing spaces or whatever institutional organization that you're in. If you think about that collaborative approach to it across generations, I think we're far better off than any kind of siloed or even adversarial dynamic. And you've been great for reaching out beyond academia through your journalism. And do you, do you consider that an extension of your teaching? Absolutely. I think about this in two ways. One, when I wrote my first book and, and, and a lot of my writing prior to that is pretty much for an academic audience. There's certainly people who picked up color no more who are not in academia and I will forever be grateful for that. But it is a book that is deeply kind of tethered to an academic book model. And, you know, I was disheartened because there are people in my family of various levels of education. So picking up that book might've felt very intimidated or very disconnected to this thing that because of who they were, I was able to write. And so I wanted to find a way to still be as thoughtful, as engaged, as incisive as my analysis, but to cultivate a voice that really connected with the communities that I feel accountable to. I don't feel accountable to the academy. I feel accountable to marginalized people. So if I'm gonna create a project I want one that people sit with and engage and can really parse through and not that it's not smart or you might have to do work to do it, but that it feels like I'm talking with you as opposed to at you or even worse down to you, which is sometimes unfortunately what academics can have a tendency to do. And so I was very intentional with America Goddamn and a lot of the public writing that came out before this to cultivate that voice and to bring in the personal. And I thought with America Goddamn, including some of my own experiences with violence and how I'm witnessing these instances would also help connect to readers in specific ways that it's less of a distance. And I'm not objective in this. I don't pretend to be objective about what's happening. I usually do commentary or op-eds. And when I've been asked to be objective, like I recently wrote a piece for, I did a piece about abortion, the history of abortion, and then one for high schoolers, right? But it had to be objective and neutral. I couldn't tip my hand as to where I stood in the battle on reproductive justice. And even in that, it was, that was probably one of the hardest things for me to do because right now I see so many attacks on access to abortion care happening. And so I'm very impassioned about that. And I, I wanted to, but I'm glad as an educator that I had the skills to present the information. And then I could write another piece about what it means that we're seeing reproductive care under attack in numerous ways, everything from maternal morbidity to access to abortion, all part of the same web of reproductive care and justice. And so 
that meant a lot to me. That one that my grandmother, where she's still alive, could read this project and feel deeply connected to it. But that the communities that I'm talking about, the families of the people and the loved ones of the people that I talk about in the book would feel seen and feel like they were being held warmly in what I was writing and what I was saying. And that's often my kind of ethical framework for writing in the way that I do. I'm completely for a clear language. If you're writing about people, it shouldn't be in language that they don't understand. It is supposed to be a mirror after all. And sometimes that means throwing away euphemisms or, or jargon that can just obscure, you know, hard facts. We have to be able to call something what it is and not mm-hmm. this embellished form, which sounds very elegant. And that's important, too. <laughs> yes. The art of writing. I love it. I love there's there's some jargon I can just sit with and marinate with. And I was like, look, this book has to be really like here it is. So even when their concept, even that I feel might be feel jargony. I'm like, how do I break this down and make sure my reader stays with me? I don't ever want to lose my reader. I don't want to lose the communities that matter most in this analysis. And so how do you write for that? And for me, that usually meant like some of my writing process, like writing, I would talk, I would just record myself talking about a thing, get it transcribed, and then do some editing. Because what I realized is I usually talk to people in a way that is very, very it's very conversational. It's very dynamic. It's still thoughtful and engaged with kind of dense concepts or complicated concepts. But I'm like, you feel me? Like there are pauses, there are things that are in there. And so how do I make that translate into writing? And probably one of the best compliments I ever got from another a person who's a writer who's also a friend is when she was reading an earlier draft of the book was like, I heard you as I was reading this. And that meant a lot that she could hear because it was my voice coming to life for her. And that is some of how she connected to me because she knows how impassioned I am about this topic. She knows how much I care about ending violence against everyone, but specifically Black women and girls. And you could feel that in a different way. So it was a sensory experience, not just this literary experience with the text. Oh, yeah. I think that's really the secret to powerful writing is it sounds like you it's not somebody else's voice Mm -mm. someone you're trying to be like it's you and you can feel it the passion comes across so how has black femininity been redefined in the past few years and is this I'll just tack on this part and is this you know region dependent or you know how do you think about it on a global or universal Mm. aspect Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions about Black femininity as we're thinking about gender, right? So there's a lot of, for me, I see conversations about expansiveness of what the Black feminine can be, a resistance to some of the longstanding stereotypes about Black women. And each of these stereotypes have kind of site-specific histories. You ask the strong Black woman, the mammy, these tropes that are recurring that we see. So people pushing back against that casting um, and the kind of defeminizing of Black women. And then you have other Black women who are like, femininity ain't doing it for me. (laughs) And I want to think more expansively about the ways that we show up in the world and what does patriarchy tell us about gender and therefore like how do we feel like we invest in our gender expression and how we show up in the world and so what I'm excited about across the world is that Black women I think are largely defending and Black people who identify um, with feminine 
expression are redefining femininity on their own terms and questioning femininity and interrogating its history and pushing back against strictures around what that can mean. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about these questions. And I know that it's a, they're risky because the proclamation that ain't I a woman, for instance, or this long history of masculinizing Black women has a very violent and harmful history. And even in that, Black women are still, many Black women are still skeptical of Black femininity as imposed, as opposed to a Black femininity or Black femininities that are authored and constructed through our own experiences, our own desires, and our own relationship to gender expression. It's a lot to take in. It's always evolving. And now there, I think there's positive and negatives to it. You wonder sometimes about, I'm talking about the kind of, it's like a trend or a fad for inclusion and diversity, which I think of course is important, but then sometimes you wonder if people are just like doing it to tick boxes as well. So what is your vision for that? Uh, you know, what are some like good examples of that? You don't want to make anything like that forced upon people where they just aren't taking it in. Yeah, so there's a lot of this push right now to say like, let's normalize, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, part of what is undergirding is that it's like, let's not criminalize or harm people who are engaging in the world in this way. But I think a lot of us are still interested in being subversive and being like, there's a way that when we say something is minoritized because of our society is hierarchical. So many of our societies are hierarchical and rest power in those who are seen as the mythic norm of white male cisgender and whatever the dominant languages and in various spaces and so minoritized means less than and i think the reclamation of difference that's not hierarchized and the ability to find your folks and find your connections and find yourself in real ways that's not measured against this intractable center is what's important to me in terms of thinking about a more inclusive world. And so that can still be subversive, that can still be transgressive, that you're finding power in being that and that they're shifting things like people are, I, we're learning about, I'm still happily learning about what gender means to people and what this means in different societies, what that's meant historically in different places. And I want to know more about that, which gives more possibility to the way that we're thinking about things, but also still ties us to look, patriarchy is still an organizing logic. So that is why we see a disproportionate number of people who identify as women and people who are perceived as women harmed by violence because of patriarchy. And so I'm interested in the systems more than I'm interested in, right? The, the more kind of micro level, here's my identity. It's like, are you going to be killed, harmed, marginalized, dispossessed, or disenfranchised because of this material reality and this lived experience? And so what do we need to do in terms of these systems to ensure that you are not, right, more vulnerable because of that? At your Black Feminisms initiative, we don't have as many of them here in Paris. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of inclusivity and diversity uh, workshops happening. Mm. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That's a good way to teach. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm always leery of 
the workshop model and the like, well, by the end of this, you'll be more diverse. I don't, I don't even know what that is You've supposed got a 100% to be. non-racist certificate. Right, and it's like, no, right? We live in a racist world. We live in a sexist world. We, so are we giving people tools to dismantle something, right? Which part of that work is about interrogation and reflexivity. What are the ways that I perpetuate or engage in this form of this? What, what privilege do I move through the world with? How am I experiencing marginalization in the world? That self-reflexivity and interrogation is important. And now that you've done that, what are the ways that you're working and who are you working with, right? This is not just solo work. This is collective work that needs to be done. There are so many people prior to the kind of DEI explosion that were committed to doing this work in real ways. And I think it's important to, to connect with folks who are invested in dismantling systems, right? And so just having said marginalized person in the room doesn't matter if the room is still jagged and violent and harmful and criminalizing towards them that doesn't in and itself change the room so how do we those are the those are the if any workshops i'm interested in is like how do we go about changing the culture of this place of this unit and so with the transformative black feminist initiatives there are kind of multiple things happening there's a night school that's virtual that's open to anyone in the community There'll be an institute, which will be a summer institute that will occur next summer, which is bringing together scholars, organizers, artists, and students to think through different concepts and see what kinds of solutions we can offer. But we want to do that collectively in terms of thinking about, so the first one is like, how do we think about abolition? What does that mean to us? How do we talk to people with reservations about various forms of abolition, right? What does that look like? The following summer, it'll be on queering and transing Black feminism. So really looking at those who are experiencing advanced marginalization. And so I'm thinking of these kinds of programs that look at the issues systemically, institutionally, and structurally as those that make the biggest impact, right? Those that have an opportunity to shift consciousness in ways that move towards a collective investment in justice as opposed to an individual, I am racist or I am not racist or I am sexist and I'm not sexist. Awesome, still in a sexist society, so what do we do? <laughs> like that, That's great. I'm glad you're divesting from gender norms and you know roles and the socialization that says men are, uh, should have more power than women. That's awesome but those systems still are here. So let's work together to dismantle those. And so I'm only interested in those programs and initiatives that have dismantling at the core and building and envisioning as the kind of key keywords <laughs> in there. Exactly. I agree. The deep system change that I think that we need, because we've seen examples of this photoshopping diversity, but when you <laughs> go deep in, oh my God. Yeah. You know, to take a photo, but are you allowing those people to like actually be a part of right. it? And is your culture somewhere where they would want to speak? Let's say you're giving them an opportunity, but the culture still hasn't changed in a place, right? That matters. That matters because there was a reason that up until this point, you never had someone from this racial group, right? From this racially minoritized group. There's a reason. And so what are those reasons? Just putting them there doesn't change the reason, right? You've decided that whatever it was, it was bad, but if you haven't addressed what was bad about it, then 
now you're just putting this person in a very vulnerable situation where they may experience harm. And then you can just be like, well, we tried and they just didn't want to be here. <laughs> and it's like, well, did you try or did you put somebody in a, a losing situation, right? Into a losing battle. I don't have the same experience. I've experienced my own biases. We all have biases, I guess, but I've experienced bias of other people in different ways. So as you say, the, the lens that I, through which uh, Black women are perceived is a different one for Asian women. I've noticed that when I speak up, oh, we thought you were supposed to be quiet and submissive. So if you just behave in a way that would be normal for like most people, suddenly uh, the invitation is rescinded. Yes. Ooh, yes. <laughs> and it happens so often. And so just, it's just right there, right? And, and that lets you know that you haven't done the deep work because it was so easily accessible for them to go to and in response to you or to others, right? That the other ring is still right there. The, if you don't perform according to the trope or the stereotype, it's right there. You haven't changed the bag. You've just changed who's in the room. And that is really where I think we should be moving at this point if we're talking about large-scale inclusion, equity, et cetera, efforts, whatever people are calling it and identifying it. If it's not getting at that, then we're just replicating something and adding other numbers to it, right? Adding some numbers, padding the, <laughs> you know, padding the books, padding the stats. And I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that kind of work. Right. It's more than just appearances. So now yes. as you think about the future education, the progress we've made and the challenges we face, inclusion and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. What kind of world do you want to live in? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Mm. Well, I want us to preserve the planet. So I want us to be deeply involved and become um more responsible stewards of, of the world that we inhabit and our relationship to that world. I think we have a lot to learn from indigenous communities throughout the world about what it means to be in relationship with a planet that is dying and crying out for us to respond accordingly. And that requires us to address racism. It requires us to address sexism. It requires us to address poverty. It requires us to view each other through a lens of care on a consistent and unconditional basis that we deeply care for one another the work the thing that motivates me in this work is a deep and abiding care for people for our planet for the relationships that we have among people and that care is rooted in accountability i feel accountable to these places and so i want us to value accountability in real ways that anchor us in trying to create a better world for those who are coming behind us and not to be pacified by the victories, right? That even when we win, there's still a fight to be fought, which doesn't mean you don't get to enjoy the win. It doesn't mean you don't get to rest. Please rest, please, please rest. Know when to take a step back and to take a step forward, but remain in the fight in either in your heart or in communities with people who are orienting towards justice, who are orienting towards a more caring and loving world and not passive love, active love, active love. Love is a manifestation. It can only happen when just outcomes are possible for all people. And so that is the kind of love that I want us to be investing in. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Triva B. Lindsay, and for your invaluable contribution and all you do to help advance social justice and help us understand America now and America as it might be, and for documenting the legacies of violence against Black women and girls so that we can create a better tomorrow. Thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Niabo Lawal with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Niabo Lawal. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbach. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.